Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. I'm your host, Eric. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Theo. How's it going today, Theo? Not too bad. I'm just pretty stoked to talk about, you know, more Giants history. So am I. So in the last installment of the Checkdown Charlie's podcast, we broke down a little bit about the Dan Reeves era of Giants football. Basically, the Dan Reeves era kind of signaled the changing of the guard during his first season, although they did experience kind of a mini resurgence under him. His first season being 1993, at the end of which Lawrence Taylor and Phil Simms, uh, both Giants legends in their own right, ended up retiring. And after a promising start, his career with the Giants kind of fizzled out. There was some drama between himself and George Young, as well as him kind of talking out of turn in the media, not signing enough free agents, etc., etc. Yeah, there was uh, several issues with control over the personnel. Exactly. Which was sort of, sort of the issue with him leaving Denver at the time. He comes in with this reputation of obviously being a winning coach, but then it doesn't end up working out, and he's eventually let go after the 1996 season, and his replacement is about to be named. In 1997, George Young pegs Jim Fossil as next head coach of the New York Giants. So Jim Fossil had actually worked in the organization in 1991 under previous head coach Ray Handley as the quarterback coach for the Giants. So he actually was, he was in the organization during the whole Jeff Hostetler, Phil Simms quarterback controversy that never really got settled under that head coach, Mm -hmm. which eventually did get settled under Dan Reeves. Just a little bit of background information with regards to Jim Fossil. So he played quarterback at USC and was drafted in the seventh round in 1972 for the Chicago Bears, but his career didn't last very long. He eventually became a player coach for the Hawaiians of the old World Football League. Okay. And then just followed coaching and then eventually became the offensive coordinator for Stanford. And he famously coached John Elway. So he was there during John Elway's famous season in which he gets drafted first overall in the 1983 NFL draft. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he lands the head coaching job at Utah. After that, he makes his way to the NFL. After Ray Handley gets fired, Jim Fossil actually leaves the Giants and then reunites in Denver with John Elway Mm -hmm. as the offensive coordinator. That sort of connection sort of sparks a flame in John Elway's career, and he eventually throws for over 4,000 yards and 25 touchdowns in the season. I just wanted to interject a little bit. When we throw around the 4,000-yard mark, I mean, if you look at quarterback stats in today's day and age, 4,000 yards doesn't really seem like that impressive of an achievement. But then when you look at it in the context of what era of football we're talking about, coming out of the 70s where it was more like grinding smash-mouth football, and, and going, even going into the 80s is when you started to see offenses kind of open up a little bit more. So to throw for 4,000 yards and to have, uh, you know, 25 touchdowns was quite the accomplishment for any quarterback at that time. Within the context, yeah. After he coaches John Elway in Denver, he sort of bounces around the league a little bit more. So in 1995, he goes to the Raiders and takes the job of quarterback coach and then eventually goes to Arizona as the offensive coordinator and there was a like an aging boomer assize in there, and he basically helps resurge his career and the offense. Okay, so, boomer. Yeah, okay, <laughs> boomer. And that was in 1996. So yeah. for that reason, 
for like his ability to improve offenses quickly. So with John Elway in Denver, and then afterwards with Boomer Sison in Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, George Young sees this and you know quickly pegs him as the guy to be the next Giants head coach. And he says he basically can do it in more than one stop, and he's the perfect man for their offense. That's so. Jim Fossil's formula was pretty simple. He wanted to play bare knuckles football, as he says. So he wanted to win the the turnover ratio. And he also led the league in 10 play drives. So extending the plays, owning the possession. And in the first year with the New York Giants, he ends up winning the NFC East. And he also wins coach of the year. Another little tidbit, he was actually really close with John Elway. Elway would actually go over to his house for his kids' birthday parties. And throughout his time, he had the sort of, because he was from California, he had this like reputation of being a pretty laid back guy. Mm -hmm. But later on, Michael Strahan actually divulges that he was probably the hardest coach he actually played under, which is interesting because he was also coached under Tom Coughlin, who was known to be the exact opposite, a strict disciplinarian. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess... It just depends on what you mean by bare knuckles football. And, uh, you know, maybe sometimes he could be the disciplinarian, even though he wasn't known for it. What struck me, you know, when you were describing that was how, again, the Maras or the Giants organization is able to have somebody who was within the organization, let's say 1991 as the quarterback's coach, have them go out and kind of earn their stripes elsewhere in the league, and then they bring them back into the fold. It seems to happen with a lot of front office staff within the organization. I mean, you look at someone like Fossil or someone like Tom Coughlin, who was the wide receiver coach, even someone like Jerry Reese or Dave Gettleman in in recent years, you know, that worked within the organization and, and worked their way up and even had some experience outside the organization. It's interesting to me. So as young talent started to emerge from the ranks, that's kind of when Jim Fossil was hired as head coach. So in his first season, they started 1-3, but they ended up becoming the first team to go from worst in the division the previous season to first the following year. They were also undefeated in the NFC East and became the first team to also do that. So 1997 ended up being a breakout year for Michael Strahan, who recorded 14 sacks in the season. Despite losing to the Vikings in the wildcard game, it was good for the Giants to show signs of life heading into the end of the 90s. After going 8-8 eight and eight in 1998, the GM at the time, Ernie Acorsi, signed Kerry Collins, who was the first ever draft pick of the Carolina Panthers. After some substance abuse and disagreements with his teammates got him released, it was a controversial decision for Acorsi to sign him at the time. In 1999, the core of the Giants, which now included Tiki Barber, Amani Toomer, and Ike Hilliard, could not get the Giants to the playoffs after they lost their final three games of the season. And despite this late slip-up, it was clear that the Giants had the potential for great things heading into the 2000 season. You can see, again, they're kind of gearing up for another run. And at least, you know, the young core is starting to show signs of life at this point. And I know that entering into the 2000 season, it was sort of a make-or-break year for Jim Fossil. Mm -hmm. Because he had shown promise, like Dan Reeves, at the beginning of his career, like the first year. Mm -hmm. And then it was starting to slowly decline. Yeah, that's fair. They gave him enough leeway, but going into the following season, it was really important for him to provide results. Exactly. 
The Giants' 2000 season started out strong as multiple elements from their previous drafts came together, as we'd mentioned earlier. So, Gary Collins was coming into his own after having been traded from the Carolina Panthers. Tiki Barber and Ron Dane formed a formidable backfield duo. Players like Amani Toomer had emerged as legitimate weapons for the offense, and Jesse Armstead, Jason Seahorn, and Michael Strahan led the defense. Interesting fact about Jason Seahorn, the last white cornerback to ever start a game in the NFL. Are you serious? Yep. <laughs> Just putting that out there. I saw it on uh, on Instagram the other day, so I figured I would I would put that in there. But yeah, he was great. So the defense was legit, the offense was coming into its own, and the Giants actually started out really strong to start at the 2000 season. The last time I've seen like a white dude play the cornerback position was Julian Edelman in the last Giants Super Bowl victory, I believe. He played cornerback at, at some point. He did, did he, was he like... He came in as like a nickelback, like, sort of. Right, okay. He was, it was at that point where he wasn't like one of the regular go-to weapons for Brady. Mm-hmm. And they had quite a few options with like Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was just such a versatile athlete that they actually lined him up in the nickel spot. Well, yeah. I mean, shout out to Jason Seahorn for uh, being a valuable member of that Giants team and uh, for being a white quarterback. At the midpoint of the 2000 season, the Giants were at 7-2. and two. However, they ended up losing their next two games, prompting their coach to declare that this team is going to the playoffs. This would be the turning point for the season as the Giants would not lose another regular season game and finish with a 12-4 and four record. Good enough for first place in the NFC East and home field advantage ahead of the 11-5 Philadelphia Eagles, who they would face in the first round of the playoffs. They would end up winning that game against Donovan McNabb and the Eagles, meaning that they were 3-0 against the Eagles for the season. Suck it, Eagles. (laughs) (laughs) The next matchup was a tilt against the Minnesota Vikings in the NFC Championship game. And as I'd mentioned earlier in 1998, they lost to the Minnesota Vikings in 98. So... Clearly, they wanted to get some revenge on them. This game turned out to be a lot more lopsided than people had expected it to be, as the Giants jumped out to a 34 to nothing lead in the first half. They totaled 518 yards for the game. Kerry Collins had 381 yards and five touchdowns. Ike Hilliard caught 10 passes for 155 yards and two touchdowns. John Fox was actually the defensive coordinator. For the Giants at the time and his game plan was successful in stopping both Chris Carter and Randy Moss I mean if you wow. look at if you've heard any of those names before you know how formidable that wide receiver duo was at the time yeah John Fox ended up stymieing that offense at 41 to nothing in the fourth quarter the Giants let their foot off the gas and they were headed to the Super Bowl to face the Baltimore Ravens things are kind of looking up for the Giants at this point most definitely, they're headed to the Super Bowl. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. The names that are kind of thrown around in terms of the, the coordinators on that staff, like defensive coordinator was John Fox and offensive coordinator Sean Payton. So, you know, clearly they had a staff of people that were capable. John Fox, of course, went on to, Carolina. to the Carolina Panthers, exactly. And he was the coach of the Denver Broncos as well when Payton won. Is that right? Not when Peyton won, the year, the couple years before Peyton won the Super Bowl. Yeah. And then 
afterwards he went to Chicago for a couple right. seasons. Mm-hmm. But not specifically the Super Bowl year, but the years in which he had a really he had a really high flying offense, you know, where Peyton throws for over five thousand yards, and I believe fifty two touchdowns. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Fun fact, Adam Gase was the offensive coordinator. <laughs> and Peyton Manning was the offensive coordinator. <laughs> 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 no, give Gase the credit he deserves. He, you know, he was the offensive coordinator at that time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, if you know anything about great NFL defenses, then the 2000 Baltimore Ravens defense shouldn't need any introduction. So, it was led obviously by Ray Lewis, and the defense basically decimated the Giants in the Super Bowl. Contrast that with them being up 41 to nothing in the NFC Championship game probably one of the most lopsided NFC Championship games in recent memory, with Kerry Collins, who threw four interceptions, and their lone touchdown was a kick return that was answered on the very next play by a kick return touchdown for the Ravens. The Giants only ran three plays in Ravens' territory for the entire game. Seriously? Yes, seriously. So needless to say, the Ravens dominated the game en route to a deserved victory. I mean, basically, the Giants just ran into a freaking buzzsaw, man. Like, the 2000 Ravens are up there with the 85 Bears in terms of being one of the best defenses in NFL history. And the Mm -hmm. Giants just ended up facing one of those. I mean, obviously, it was a pretty epic collapse by the Giants. I mean, you're in the Super Bowl, you throw four interceptions. Just one of those things. You know, you come up against history, there's not much you can do. To be quite honest, I think if you were to poll people mm-hmm. as to who the Ravens played in that Super Bowl, I feel like you get a, a good percentage of people that would have absolutely no idea. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. There can only be one winner on any given year, right? So a lot of the, the hard work and dedication of the team that they ended up losing in the Super Bowl, you know, kind of goes by the wayside, kind of gets forgotten, in my opinion. And I think Yeah, especially when... Like you remember something as iconic as the 2000s Ravens defense, mm-hmm. right? Like that's sort of etched into NFL history. Yeah, for same sure. goes with the '85 Bears. Like, do you even remember who they played in the Super Bowl? Uh, the Patriots. Was it the Patriots? Yeah, they played, yeah, yeah. They played the Patriots. But it's like one of those things where yeah. You're not quite certain, you know? I just remember seeing William Perry scoring the touchdown on footage, and I think it was Patriots jerseys in the background. But yeah, that's pretty much it, man. Like, I don't really really remember too much about it, but... Yeah, it only seems like the people that remember who the opponent was are basically, you know, fans of that team, you know? Interesting facts, hearkening back to our earlier episodes, but the Giants actually lost to the 85 Bears as well in the NFC Championship game. They got shut out in that game as well so yeah two historic defenses beat the giants but uh, we'll move on from there so obviously in 2001 the giants ended up finishing with a disappointing seven and nine record the lone bright spot for the team was michael strahan breaking the record for number of sacks in a season with 22 and a half sacks and we'll get into this a little bit more in regards to Michael Strahan, but just to say that was kind of the noteworthy thing from that season. After the 2001 season, this left the Giants in a situation where they had to sign Michael Strahan to a contract to keep him on the team. The Giants were over the cap, and he was set to account for over 17% of that cap number. During the negotiations, Strahan went as far as to say, I have loved my time with the Giants and the fans, but this season is going to be my last one here which, you know, obviously we know not to be true, 
However, you can see that he's already playing hardball. You break the record for sacks in a season. Obviously, you got to get paid, right? Looking back on it after all this time, it seems like he's just using the media to sort of push the giant's hand, you know? Of course. Force the contract through. Mm-hmm. So this prompted Tiki Barber, running back at the time, to sound off on his teammate. He said that Strahan, quote-unquote, should just be quiet because Strahan didn't want to split his signing bonus and defer it over two years like many of his teammates, including Tiki Barber and Amani Toomer, had done. And this is a direct quote from Barber who told the New York Post, I don't know if he realizes how much money $17 million is. That is absolutely ridiculous to turn that down. He's already the highest paid defensive player in the league. He's already making more than most quarterbacks. I find it hard to believe this whole deal hinged on if he was going to get $17 million or $10 million this year. I find that hard to believe. That's the value of my entire contract. That's why I have no sympathy. You're telling me that's not good enough for two years? Give me a break. He goes on to say, I know they care about winning. You got to realize no single player, I don't care how good you are, how many sacks you had, or how many yards you've rushed for, is bigger than the team. Period. Michael is not thinking about the team. He's thinking about himself. And he goes on to say, if you can't trust the Giants, who can you trust? What are your thoughts on those quotes, Theo? I think he's saying what most fans are thinking. Yeah. But he just broke the cardinal rule, which is you can't talk about other people's money. Yeah. Like he's talking about the chemistry of the team and how Strahan needs to be a team player. But in the process of doing so, he's not being a team player. You're exactly right. Why would you go to the media and talk so much shit about your own teammate and accuse him of not being a team player? That's exactly it. You're, you're undermining the team way more than Michael Strahan ever did. It's like when you get into a fight with someone, mm-hmm. it'd be right, but the manner in which you said it or like, you know, you didn't let one specific point go and people just focus on how poorly you dealt with that fight mm-hmm. versus how right you actually were. The attention is not so much on Strahan anymore. It's on how shitty of a teammate Tiki was. Exactly. And yeah, I think that the way that Tiki Barber has been represented in this story is kind of, I don't know how to how to word it exactly the right word. I don't want to say traitor, but I, I would say that he is undermining the team in that aspect. But more importantly, like, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to be in very good taste for him to do that. But then again, I mean, we talked about it a little bit off mic, but obviously Tiki Barber wanted to foster relationships in the media in order to then have a career in media himself, which I, I respect the hustle. He does have a career in media following his, his playing career, mm-hmm. but sort of a sneaky way to come about that. Right, exactly. So these comments were not well received by his teammates who went to Strahan's side of the a disagreement. One teammate stated that if Tiki was so charitable, he should give up some of his $7 million signing bonus to pay the AP Defensive Player of the Year. Strahan and Barber are said to have made up and are friends in the public eye. Yeah, but which, we really never know how. Yeah, I mean, take that with a grain of salt, I would say. Exactly. Yeah. Sort of like Strahan's pretty classy guy, and he represents the organization even to this day. Yeah. You don't 
want to have bad blood between former teammates. Definitely not. And I will say that Michael Strahan is in the Giants' ring of honor, and I don't think Tiki Barber is. Recently, there's been talk of him like warming to the organization again, but we'll kind of get into more of the controversy for Tiki Barber later on, because obviously... Tiki Barber was a, a pretty important part of the team within the like early 2000s. He was an amazing rusher and was great for fantasy team and for the Giants at large. Like he's one of the great Giants players in history, but his relationship with the organization, especially later on in his career, kind of soured that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But anyway, in 2002, they did end up signing Strahan, obviously. But in 2002, their offense was led by rookie tight end Jeremy Shockey and Tiki Barber. They managed a 10-6 and record after winning four straight to end the season. In the wildcard game, however, they blew a 38-14 lead versus the 49ers. With time running down, the Giants drove all the way downfield to set up an attempt for kicker Matt Bryant. However, Trey Junkin, a long snapper they had signed only for this game, missnapped the ball and the punter could not handle it. He managed a desperation heave downfield, but it was of no use and the Giants lost the game 39-38. So, wow, what a close lead. How yeah. many people lost money on that game? I know. I look up a video of it too. It's quite the game if you look at highlights, but I believe that that was... Jeff Garcia, who was the quarterback of the Giants or of yeah. the 49ers at the time? Yeah, seems to be right. Yeah. Jeff Garcia, early 2000s. Sounds yeah. about right, right. But anyway, in 2003, the Giants ended up collapsing and finishing 4 and 12, and Fossil asked to be fired prior to the end of the season. So clearly, it was kind of a mutual parting of the ways. However, the Giants actually did accomplish a fair bit, obviously making a trip to the Super Bowl, having Michael Strahan break the sack record at the time. I would say the Giants of the the late 90s and the early 2000s, again, showed promise for the future. And anytime your team can make it to the Super Bowl, despite how they performed in the game, I would say I would call it a relative success. Yeah, and, you know, this is probably, it's the longest era of consistency post-Parcells, right? Mm -hmm. One would say that in the modern era of football, aside from Coughlin and Parcells, Fossil's probably the most successful tenured Giants head coach. Yeah, I would say. You know, he brings them to a Super Bowl. But it it kind of makes me, if I'm just looking at the the staff during the 2000s mm-hmm. and he has some notable head coaches you know guys who actually like Sean Payne's the offensive coordinator John Fox is a defensive coordinator Jason Garrett's actually the backup quarterback to Kerry Collins funny enough mm-hmm. and this definitely emphasizes the importance of coaching staffs in the NFL you know guys your surrounding cast is just as important as the head coach mm-hmm. you know for a while the early 2000s Bill Belichick wins, but he also has Charlie Weiss and Romeo Cornell. Romeo Cornell hasn't been the most successful head coach, but he's always been coaching in and around the NFL to, you know, a certain degree with relative success. Right, exactly. I mean, any good head coach is always propped up by his assistants and other people in the organization. And I think that, that, you know, this is no exception to that. Do you think if they had made the playoffs in 2000, but not made the Super Bowl, they would have kept Jim Fossil as the head coach? It's difficult because in 2003, he did ask to be let go. There could have been more things at play. 
you could probably make the argument that maybe he would have been on a shorter leash because even in for them to make the Super Bowl in 2000, it kind of required a, a big run from seven and four to 12 and four to making it to the Super Bowl. But I don't know. It's difficult to say. I think it would have been kept on for at least another year mm. because how dominant they were at the beginning of the season. You know, they came on very strong mm-hmm. you know, and they did end up making the playoffs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because like a couple losses here and there, they add up and then you're no longer the head coach of an NFL team. Yeah, and I don't know. Coaching the NFL is so much about momentum and, you know, and like things kind of breaking your way. And I feel like morale is a big thing. Even though it's not something that's quantifiable, I think, you know, momentum is huge when it comes to the success of a football team. And I don't know, sometimes it can break your way, other times it doesn't, you know? A perfect example probably would be prior to uh, Matt Patricia's hiring, the head coach of, of the Detroit Lions was... Uh, Jim Caldwell. Jim Caldwell. And the season he got fired, there was question marks as to whether he would remain the head coach. Mm-hmm. And they got off to like a really good start. And then the Ford organization now announces that <laughs> they've re-signed him. They gave him a, a bigger contract. Right. And then they started to like falter down the stretch. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up being let go, even though he just signed a new contract. It's just an interesting like example of how momentum affects the front office's decision to keep a head coach or not. Yeah. And I've seen now even like, not to get off track, but obviously... You know, you look at the Detroit Lions situation now, people are like, can you imagine if Jim Caldwell had stayed the head coach? He'd probably be doing a lot better than this. Exactly, which is funny enough. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, anyway, that, that concludes the Jim Fossil era for the Giants. So at this point, the end of the 2003 season, and they're looking for a replacement, which we'll get into in coming episodes. Um, some more recent Giants fans might know what's coming next, but we will leave it on a cliffhanger for now. Thank you so much for listening to Check Down Charlie's. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Please tell a friend if you're interested. We'll have a few more episodes coming out in this series. And who knows, maybe some more history of NFL franchises in the future. But for now, I'm Eric signing off for my pal Theo. And we'll talk to you later. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Check Down Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlies on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlies on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.